This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, if you could open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and if you didn't bring one, I did, so that'll that'll work well. Um, We're working through the Gospel of John together, and today I'm going to cover a lot of, uh, kind of a lot of material compared to what we have done the past few weeks. Uh, So let me pray, and we will dig right in to this uh, passage of Scripture today. Join me, let's pray together. God, we come before you today, and we recognize our need for you. We come before your Scripture, and we posture ourselves as those who are in need of your light to open our eyes from the Word of God. We pray that you would speak to us clearly. We pray that you would not just speak information, but you would change our hearts and our lives. God, we want to encounter you through the very pages of your Scripture. So, Holy Spirit of God, speak through your Word, your God-breathed Word today to us, we pray. Lord, I pray that you'd give me strength and clarity in my thinking so that I might communicate in a way that would uh, serve uh, the wonderful folks gathered here for worship today. Make this an act of worship as we are, seek to be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we're going to cover a lot. We're going to finish the chapter. So we're going to go verses 19 through 51 uh, this morning. And, you know, sometimes you can think, well, if you cover more, more material, it's going to necessarily sort of be shallow. If you cover a lot of, if you cover a little material, it's going to be deeper. And that's not true because I can be shallow and cover very little material. Uh, so it's not necessarily a given that that is the case. Um, particularly when you cover a broader section of scripture, if there's an emerging theme that repeats itself and you're able to see that theme through differing events, Uh, Sometimes that's even a way to get a message stronger, and that's at least what my hope is for today. We're going to look at the introduction to Jesus' ministry. The first 18 verses of John are are called the prologue. That's where Jesus is introduced as God, God in the flesh who's come uh, to earth. And then in verses 19 through 51, we get this opening of Jesus' ministry. His mission begins And so here we're going to uh, have a second, kind of a secondary introduction to Jesus by understanding his ministry and by observing the initial witnesses to him. The first guy we're going to read about today is John the Baptist. And in chapter 1, verse 7, we see that John the Baptist was called a witness, that he comes to bear witness about Jesus. A witness is someone who tells truthfully what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced, what they know to be true. And so John is a witness, and then following him, there are going to be the, the encounters with the first disciples, and we're going to observe their witness. And sort of the big idea, the theme uh, in this section of Scripture is, is about witness. And what we learn is that witness is about introducing people to Jesus who changes lives. Witness is about introducing people to Jesus who changes lives. And we see that, first of all, in the life of John the Baptist. So let's read verses. I'm going to read in sections today. So let's read in verses 19 through through 34, and then we'll come back and, and break it down a little bit. And this is the testimony of John. 
When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, the first witness here is that of John the Baptist who is introducing people to Jesus who changes lives. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, it is quite a commotion. The, the people of Israel have not had a prophet, a biblical prophet, for like 400 years. So they've not heard God speak through a prophet to them until this guy comes. And the other Gospels make clear to us that when he comes, he's a bit of, at least externally, he's extremely godly, but he's a bit of an odd duck. I mean, externally... Uh, he's different. He dresses different, describes his camel hair. He dresses in a different way. Uh, he eats differently. The scripture says he eats locusts, uh, which are like a plague at parts of the Old Testament. But he's eating locusts, and he lives out in the wilderness, sort of away from everybody. So he's like this desert creature, this sort of survival guy. He's, if they did a reality show, he would be like man versus wild or survivor man, one of those kind of things if the cameras could follow him around and see how he lived. He's like this survival guy out in the desert and he is speaking and there hasn't been a prophet for years, so crowds of people are coming out to hear John the Baptist. He's a spectacle. And they're coming to hear what he has to say And they're becoming convinced of what he has to say, and they're getting baptized out in the river. And so the religious leaders in Jerusalem obviously must check this out. This guy is gaining followers. What is he doing? So they send this delegate out, uh, this uh, delegation of priests and Levites to go out and begin to inquire of him. Because the witness of John the Baptist is this, that his lifestyle and his message leads to an inquiry leads to an inquiry. And that's really true of any witness, any Christian witness. Our lifestyle might not be peculiar in terms of we eat insects, but um, our lifestyle should be such that it would 
it would, it would cause people to inquire. Our speech is to be such that uh, there would be language that would point to Christ at times, that would, would bring inquiry. And so there is this inquiry of John the Baptist because he's a witness. And uh, they come and they ask him, these religious leaders, who are you? They're sent by the Pharisees. They've got to go back and give a report. Who are you? Verse 20, he confesses, I am not the Christ. There's a lot of expectation for the Messiah around this time. The one who will come from Israel, the king who will deliver the people of Israel. So there's great expectation. There's all kind of ideas about what this Messiah will be like. So he tells them from the beginning, I'm not the Christ. So they say, verse 21, what are you? Are you Elijah? Now, Jesus, and he answers no. Jesus at one point does say John the Baptist is Elijah, but he's referring to the sense that John the Baptist comes kind of in the spirit of Elijah as a prophet. He's not literally Elijah. There may have been some anticipation in that day, some rumor, some mythology amongst the Jews that, that Elijah would come literally again. And he's saying, I'm not the reincarnated Elijah. People wanted Elijah to come and bring spiritual renewal as a prophet, but he says, that's not me. So they say, are you the prophet? The prophet likely refers to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses, the deliverer, who delivers God's people from Egypt, says, there's coming a prophet after me, and he speaks of a great prophet that will one day come again, as he was. And so that's probably an expectation that a prophet will come and will throw off the Roman rule, just as Moses was used to throw off the Egyptian rule. And he says, no, I'm not the prophet. So they say, who are you? You're not Elijah, the one who will come and bring spiritual renewal. You're not the prophet that will deliver us politically. Uh, You're not the Christ. So who are you? And he answers, verse 23, 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I'm a voice. I'm a voice. John has already made clear in his gospel that Jesus is the word. And now here's the one who is voicing the Word, speaking of the Word, introducing the Word to people. He's preparing the way of the Lord. What's what's noticeable about this encounter is that John is relentless in deferring attention from himself, himself and putting it on the Savior. I mean, when they come out and inquire, this guy's successful. This guy has a following. People are making a trip. I mean, there's a revival kind of going on here. So people are like making a trip out to the wilderness to see this guy and to hear him and to be baptized by him. But when they inquire, he doesn't say, well, who are you? Well, let me share with you the baptism stats. I mean, have you heard about our growth? Have you heard about my message? Have you been to my seminar? Do you have my book? Are you following what I'm really doing? Have you heard about the growth that we're experiencing out here at the wilderness revival movement, so to speak. And, you know, I'm available for interview. Have you read my blog? Uh, Have you seen me on YouTube? He's not promoting himself in any way. He's not promoting his baptism. As a matter of fact, when they ask about it, he's not even going to give them a straight answer. You'll see that in a second. He's not promoting his ministry. He says, all I am is a voice. A voice that points people to Jesus. And then in the next passage, he even makes that more clear. Look at verse 25. They ask him, why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water. I think they knew that. But he doesn't really answer their question. But among you stands one you do not know. 
even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So here's what he says. He says, I'm just baptizing in water, preparing the way for someone else, and that someone else is among you. And you don't even know who he is, but here's what I would tell you about him. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. That'd be labor below that of a slave. I am not even in the category. Yeah, people are coming. The crowds are coming out. There has to be an, a, a, an investigative panel of religious leaders to test his orthodoxy, to find out who he is. He's a spectacle. There's growth. There's movement. There's baptism revival. And he says, um, I, I, to be a slave would be a significant upgrade for me to relate to this individual. There's no category to describe how much greater he is than I am. Do you see the principle, really, of, of the witness? He is captivated by the greatness of Jesus. He's not pointing people to himself. Now, we'll see there's a place for personal testimony. But even there, the testimony is not about me. It's about Jesus. When they ask who he is, he points to Jesus. When they ask about his success, he points to Jesus and says, I'm not even worthy to be this one's slave. He has such an encounter with Christ that it affects him to, their, to, to, to the point that when he communicates, he's not just running through some facts. Yeah, I hear the facts, and I pray this prayer, and everything will be okay. Here's the story of Jesus. Yeah, just believe this orthodoxy, and you'll be okay. He is speaking about the greatness of a Savior. And a real witness is one who has encountered the greatness of Jesus and therefore seeks to introduce people to Jesus who changes lives. Look, he goes on, and he tells specifically some things about Jesus. Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as a witness, he identifies Jesus and describes him. He says he's great. Why is he great? Because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What? does that mean? That's the introductory statement about Jesus that in all of the Gospel of John, at least made by a witness. John writes some things about Jesus before this. But the first thing said about Jesus is, look, check it out, look, behold, see, that's the Lamb of God. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean he's gentle. You know, little lambs are kind of furry and gentle, and he's a gentle person, he is, but that's not what he means. See, lamb points to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and a lamb was an animal that was sacrificed for the sins of another. So someone might bring an animal to sacrifice to kill so that God would treat their sins forgiven. There must be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so a, a lamb would be slaughtered and offered in sacrifice to cover the sins of the person that offered it. Or sometimes it could be covered, all the people's sins could be covered by uh, the sacrifice of a lamb. That, that's a general principle of the Old Testament that God pours out His judgment for human sin on a substitute. And so an animal takes the place ultimately of a human in dying for sin. But the reality is 
the blood of those lambs never ultimately took away all sin. They point forward to the one who would come, Jesus Christ, to give his life for sinners. Now here's what's telling about the statement John makes. Normally in the Old Testament, a sinner offers an animal for sacrifice to cover his sins. Who offers this lamb? God. Look what he says. Behold, the lamb of God. But God has no sins. God doesn't need to be forgiven. Well, John explains that. Behold the Lamb of God, the one who will be sacrificed, who takes away the sin of the world. God sends Jesus. God becomes man. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And He comes to offer Himself for our sins. The most important thing to know about Jesus is the opening statement about Him here in John's ministry. He's the Lamb of God. He is the one who has come because God is about rescuing sinners. God is about forgiving people of their sins. God is about granting new life to those who are apart from Him. God is about making His enemies His friends. God is about taking people that are dead in sin and granting them life. God is about turning people who hate Him into people who love Him. God is about taking people who are running away from Him in rebellion and grabbing them and restoring them to Himself by His own work. That's why Jesus is the Lamb of God. John says this is the one, this is God Himself coming to make a sacrifice to give His own life for us. So when you hear Lamb of God, don't think gentle, cuddly animal. Think bloody sacrifice. Animal with its throat slit and its blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's Jesus. A bloodied sacrifice on the cross where God pours out His judgment for our sins on Jesus Christ Himself so that all who would believe in Him may have their sins forgiven. It is not a neat... I mean, they would have heard that and they would have thought, well, that's a neat image and let's put it on a coffee mug and uh, sing a song, Mary Had a Little Lamb, whatever, and write some songs about it. They would have thought that is a, there, there's a bloody image associated. There's a killing. There's a sacrifice. There's a loss of life. And God Himself is in the person of Jesus Christ is going to experience that. So, Jesus, so John witnesses not just generally about the greatness of Jesus, but specifically that He is the Lamb of God. If you're investigating Christianity or you're learning about the Bible this book of John is excellent. And what we just learned here is the most important thing you need to know about Jesus Christ. If you don't know anything else, this is the most important thing, is that He came as a sacrifice. He didn't primarily come as an example. Sometimes it's thought He's an example. Live like Jesus, be like Jesus, because He's a good moral teacher, so be good like Jesus, and then you're accepted by God. Right out of the starting gate, he said, he didn't come for you to learn how to be good like him. He came because you're not good and he will be a sacrifice for your sins. That's the primary thing to know. Now, is he an example? Well, of course he is. Once you know Christ as your Savior, then you can look at his life and say, God, make me more like your son, Jesus Christ. So he does serve as an example. But he's a sacrifice before he is an example. Secondly, this, John tells us he's not only the Lamb of God, but he is the baptizer in the Spirit. Verse 26, he says, I baptize with water. And then he goes on later in verse 32, 
and says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, that's God the Father, to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John is telling people, I'm baptizing people in water. What does that mean? I'm baptizing people in water so that they're repenting and preparing for the coming Savior. So their baptism says, I want to be right with God. I want to have my sins forgiven. I want a fresh start. I want to repent and turn and be ready to receive the Savior who's coming. That's John's baptism. That doesn't change a life. I mean, there's no ultimate power in that water to change a life. The one who's coming after me, John says, is so much greater. He's going to immerse people, baptize people in the Spirit that changes lives. He's going to take people and change them internally. They're not just going to say, I'm ready for the Savior. They're actually going to be, as I said earlier, born of God. They're going to be immersed in the Spirit and receive new life. They're going to be changed from the inside. They're going to have the Holy Spirit empower them for witness. They're going to have the Holy Spirit give them spiritual gifts for ministry and service to others. Jesus is going to take someone's life and He's going to change it from the inside, making them a new living person, granting them a new birth and empowering them to be a witness. So when Jesus comes, it's not going to be external transformation. It's not going to be modify your behavior. It's going to be be a new person. Go from death to life. Go from darkness to light. And so he announces him as the one who will come and immerse people, soak people, overwhelm people with the Spirit so that they're new creatures and they're empowered for ministry. Lastly, he says he's the Son of God, verse 34, and I have seen him and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So, Lamb of God, the one who will baptize in the Spirit, the Son sent by the Father. Do you see John's witness? It's just Here is Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he does. Here's why we don't even need to be talking about me and interviewing me. This is why we need to be talking about him who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. My baptism leads to his baptism. They're categorically different. He points people to Christ. He's introducing people to Jesus because Jesus is the one that changes lives, not John. He baptizes in the Spirit and changes people. So there's a proclamation of Jesus, a witness of Jesus. The next passages are people reaching out and giving testimony to Jesus personally, not through preaching. So let's look at these. Let's look at uh, verse 35 through 42. This is the next section of this passage after John the Baptist. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, what's happening here is 
we have another proclamation that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But this time, it's not just John talking and giving witness. It's a couple people hearing it and then going and following Jesus and becoming a witness themselves. So the, the theme is still here. Witnesses point to Jesus, introduce people to Jesus who changes lives. So there's these two guys who hear John the Baptist say Jesus is the Lamb of God. They go and follow him. One of them's name is Andrew. The other one's unnamed. It could have been John, the one who wrote this book, potentially. But one of them is Andrew. And they come up to Jesus, and Jesus kind of asks a curious question, verse 38. Hey, they, they're following him, and he turns around and says, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? So that's an important question, because all kinds of people follow Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Now, he hasn't started doing miracles but what happens is the crowds all show up when he's feeding everybody where there's no food and he's, uh, you know, miraculously providing food. The crowds are huge. But when he starts saying things like, you've got to die and eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be my follower, everybody disappears. So, um, so the crowds come and go. What we come to Jesus looking for is important. And so he says, what are you looking for, basically? And they say, teacher, where are you staying? What does that mean? We want to hang out with you. We want to know you. We want to be with you. We want to see where you are. So he says, come on, and I'll show you. And he hangs out with them the rest of that day. Well, we don't know exactly what they communicated about, but whatever happened, they came and saw, they met Jesus, they hung out with Jesus, and they came to be convinced that he is the Christ, and they're radically changed. The way we know that is because verse 41, after they stayed with him, it says that Andrew found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Jesus convinced them. And here's what is glorious about this. Andrew is not even a follower of Christ 24 hours, and he's already leading someone else to follow Christ. He immediately goes and tells his brother, we have found the Messiah. I mean, it's just typical, isn't it? That when you find someone or something you're excited about, it's just normal to tell people. I mean, maybe you're here and you're married. Think about when you, you know, first started dating the person that's now your husband or wife and started getting serious and you thought you might marry them. You, you like, wanted people to know about that. You were like, I want to introduce you to her because she's special she's the one i mean you wanted people to meet her except maybe your parents based on what they would think so maybe that doesn't count <laughs> maybe you took your time on that one but normally you would say i want you to know him i want you to know her there's an eagerness i mean it doesn't even have to be your spouse recently i was talking to someone and i found a good mechanic and i was just happy to tell people i mean i was a witness I mean, it's like, this guy is good. He comes to you, he fixes your car, and it's cheap. I mean, this is fantastic. And so I'm telling people, I'm, I'm telling people, I found a mechanic. It's not nearly as important as I found a bride, but, you know, we're excited about people we find. And I wasn't ashamed. Oh, man, I don't want to tell anybody about that mechanic. I was eager because it's good news. The mechanic is cheap, and he's honest. My wife is wonderful. You've got to meet her could be recommending a restaurant i mean we just we pass on information so it's not surprising that andrew meets god and he wants to go tell his brother and say we found the messiah that means the christ that is the one chosen by god that the jews were expecting to come to bring salvation peter we found him and then this next verse is absolute gold look at verse 42 he brought him that's peter 
Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. He told them, and he said, come on, let's go meet Jesus. Let's go meet Jesus. There's two other times in the book of John where Andrew's bringing someone to Jesus. He's a bringer. He, he meets people, here's his brother, and he brings them to Jesus. And this is significant because Peter meets Jesus, and his name is Simon, but he is converted and becomes a follower of Jesus. Think about that. One person wrote, one commentator wrote, Andrew's simple witness, and it was simple. We met the Messiah. I'm taking you to him. That's simple. Andrew's simple witness is, quote, perhaps as great a service to the church as any man ever did. Why? Because this guy is going to stand up on the day of Pentecost, and he's going to be the one that's going to preach a sermon, and God is going to start the church. The church is going to be birthed when this guy stands up, used by God, and preaches. This guy's going to write a couple books of the Bible. And he's saying, did anybody ever do a greater service to the church than go in and finding this guy and said, we found the Messiah, and you come too. You never know what God might do through a simple witness. And the reality is, a witness to someone who is converted, introducing them to Jesus who changes lives, has exponential power. Because sometimes that one individual will tell their family and their friends. And that one conversation or that, that one testimony or this one sermon, I pray, could be something that has dramatic effects for years to come. Years to come. And that's what happens here. He tells his brother. And uh, he comes to meet Jesus and Jesus addresses him pretty directly. So you are Simon, verse 42, the son of John. Well, you'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. Well, this is glorious. Peter means rock. So he's saying, I'm changing your name. And I'm going to call you stable. I'm going to call you bedrock. I'm going to call you sturdy. I'm going to call you reliable. And if you read the rest of the gospel, Peter is anything but. But Jesus, from the beginning, sees his life and realizes this guy's going to be changed and be used. And Jesus relates with him based on that. And when we are touched by grace, we will relate in the same way. When we're confident in the work of Jesus to save and change a person, there will be those same kind of eyes. Now what he's not saying is that you know, Jesus will love a future version of you. you know, one, way, one day when you're that, he'll love you. No, Jesus is patient with him for several years, loves him, cares for him, even when he isn't any of those things. But he is going to be that. He's going to be a rock in the church. Of Jerusalem. He's going to be a bedrock kind of a guy. And when we're touched by grace this way, there's a way of looking at people where we say, you know what? I'm trusting God. God, you're faithful. And this person is going to be who you desire them and who you've designed them to be. And I want to relate to you and therefore to them with patience in the eyes of faith. See, that kind of approach, that affects how you relate to a resistant two-year-old. Because we're saying, I'm trusting God that what is very loud and noisy and out of control before my eyes right now will one day be the picture of God's redeeming grace in a restored, calm, peaceful individual. God's grace helps us to re relate to a resistant teenager, a resistant spouse. God's grace teaches us to say, you know what, I'm not saying we go around renaming everybody, but God's got a purpose and I'm going to look in faith to Him and I'm going to relate to God and to you 
trusting that he's working in your life. That, that means we have compassion and hope for a person, not impatience and irritation for a Christian. Because God who begun a good work will complete it in Christ Jesus in their lives. So there's Jesus. He's relating to Peter. He's changing his name. Peter obviously becomes a Christian through the witness of Andrew. Here's the last passage in the section. Verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Look what Jesus does. He reaches out to Philip. He finds Philip and says, follow me. And Philip does. He calls him to believe in him. Now, Philip must know something about him. He knows who Jesus is. But he calls him simply to follow him. It's powerful that, that becoming a disciple in each of these situations has to do with having a reorientation of our hearts so that we become a believer and a follower in Christ. Not someone who merely gives intellectual agreement. Yes, I intellectually believe in Jesus, but I intellectually believe in Jesus that he is the one who came to die for my sins, that he is the Lord, and I receive him, as verse 12 says of chapter 1, I receive him, and I believe in him, and I want God to reorient my heart and the direction of my life so that I follow him. That's the change that takes place. Well, one thing we know that Philip was really changed because he goes out and he finds Nathaniel, verse 45. And he says to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, we have found, he's saying the same thing, we found the Messiah. The Bible of the Old Testament talks about the Messiah, we found him. His name's Jesus and he's from Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel says, Nazareth, I mean, give me a break. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's impossible. Now, he's not just dissing, he's not disrespecting the city. That's not what he's doing. He's not like, well, Nazareth is not a very big town. It's not like he's saying, are you telling me God lives in Pilot Point? I mean, he's not like dissing a city and saying, well, that's, that's not a predominant city or something like that. What he's doing is he is saying, the Old Testament doesn't tell us the Messiah comes from Nazareth. The Old Testament tells us he'll come from Bethlehem, and he did. He was born and God arranged it so that he would be born in Bethlehem, Jesus. But he grew up in Nazareth, so he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. So he says, well, that, he can't really be. And so, uh, so Philip just basically says to Nathaniel, who's understandably cynical about this, he says, well, just come, verse 46, come and see. And when he comes toward him, Jesus calls him out. You know how twice we've seen, behold the Lamb of God. 
Jesus says, behold to this guy. This guy's walking up to Nathaniel. Behold, an Israelite who's not a liar. An Israelite who's not deceitful. He makes this character statement about Nathaniel, which that's amazing. If you're walking up to God and he's calling out you know, your character in a good way, that, that must have been quite a moment. So this guy's not deceitful. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How can you say I'm not deceitful? And he says, well, before Philip came to get you and tell you about me, I saw you under the fig tree. And then he just has a moment. That's a moment. Because he says, teacher, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Now, what is going on here? Because if you were to say to me, you know, hey, I saw you in the grocery store, I wouldn't say, are you God? That's, of course not. You saw me in the grocery store. I'd say, oh, you should have said hi. So why didn't he say, well, why didn't you come over to the fig tree and have a fig newton with me or Jesus or something like that? Why didn't he do that? Well, there's more to the story that we don't know. I mean, something must have happened under the fig tree where it would be miraculous for Jesus to say, I saw you there. Nobody really knows. I mean, there's speculation. This, the Bible doesn't say this. But maybe he was praying. Maybe he was talking to God and saying, show me yourself, God. Reveal yourself to me. Give me a proof that you're real. And then Jesus says, I saw you. I heard you, basically. Whoa. Okay, God. Maybe it was that. Maybe there was no one around and no one could have seen him. Maybe he looked around and made sure it was private and there was no one there. So how did he see me? How would he have known that? I, we don't know. But some, there's something about it that seemed miraculous to him, and he turned to Jesus. And then here's what Jesus says. So you believe that I'm God because I said I saw you under the fig tree. You know, put on your seatbelt, pal, because you're about to see something far more incredible than that. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. What does that mean? Well, that's a reference back to Genesis where Jacob, where Jacob fell asleep, and there's a ladder in his dream. There's a ladder that comes from heaven to earth, and there's angels ascending and descending on the ladder. God comes down to man, to, J- to Jacob in his dream, and Jacob names that place House of God, Bethel, the house of God. It's a well-known story uh, for the Israelites in the Old Testament. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm that ladder. You know the ladder that Jacob had a dream about? And the angels were coming up and down, and that was God coming down to man. That was the house of God. I am that ladder. I'm the house of God. He's saying, do you think I saw you under the fig trees a big deal? How about this one? I'm God. I'm God come to earth. I am God coming down to earth. The angels angels were descending and ascending on the intersection, the connection between God and man. I am the connection between God and man. So that's going to take that one and, and try to... Follow that. If the fig tree deal blew you away, wait till you see this. So he is obviously convinced. So look at this passage. We have John the Baptist proclaiming, deflecting to Jesus, introducing people to Jesus, talking about what Jesus is like, proclaiming who Jesus is. Lamb of God, baptizer in the Spirit, Son of God. We have Andrew giving personal testimony to his brother, Peter, We have found the Messiah. It's true. It happened. I saw him. I've encountered him. Giving actual testimony. We have Philip going to Nathanael who questions, that's not even possible. And he gives a personal invitation. You come and see. Do you see in each of these instances 
that the witness is one who introduces people to Jesus who changes their lives. It's Jesus who changes John the Baptist and opens his eyes to see him. It's Jesus who spends time with Andrew and the other disciple so that they are believers. It's Jesus who encounters Peter and gives him faith and changes his name. It's Jesus who comes up to Philip and says, follow me. It's Jesus who, when Nathanael is brought to him, reveals that he knows him and reveals this supernatural knowledge, whatever happened at the fig tree, so that Nathaniel becomes a believer as well. We introduce people to Jesus because he changes lives when they find out who he is and what he's done, particularly in the cross and resurrection. So how do we apply that to our lives briefly and we're done? Well, first of all, we realize that Jesus comes to reach people. Jesus is God in the flesh. Why does God take on flesh Why does Jesus come to earth? It's for what we're seeing right here. It's to reach out to people. To be the Lamb of God. To forgive people's sins. Christ comes with a mission to take dead people and bring them to life. To take sinful people and to wash away all their sins and declare them righteous in Jesus Christ. He comes to restore and give new life. And we see it from the beginning. He is changing people. When they encounter Him, what do they do? They follow Him. When they, when they have an invitation to come and see, they see, they encounter Him, and they draw these conclusions. You're God. You're the King of Israel. You're the Son of God. How did you know that? You're glorious. You're everything they told us. You are the Lamb of God. People are convinced, and they follow Him. Listen, you may be here today and you're investigating, you're figuring out, you're new to Christianity. I said earlier that the most important thing to know is that Jesus is the one who's a sacrifice, who dies in our place, that our sins may be forgiven if we turn from our sin and we believe in Him as our sacrifice, as our Savior. We receive receive new life. We're Christians. That's the most important thing to know. Here's another thing that's very important to know, that when you've had that experience, when you believe in Christ, it will reorient your life. You will not become perfect. You will not instantly be all holy and totally changed and all your bad habits are gone like that. It's a life life process to be changed. However, there will be a reorientation of your heart and of your life. That means you will change. Your your goal for living will change. You may still have the bad habits and some things, but your, your direction will be, I want to please the Lord. I want to know the Lord. We live in a land... In an area, North Texas, the Bible Belt, more broadly, we live in a land where grievously, I'm not saying this as a judge, because I don't know anybody's heart, but grievously, I believe there are plenty of people walking around with a false assurance. What does that mean? It's the person, and it may be you, I'm saying this in love to you. It's the person who said, I prayed a prayer at vacation Bible school in third grade and invited Jesus into my heart, but my life has never changed. It's never been different. I'm not different than anybody else. But I'm okay, and I'm going to heaven because of that. I grew up going to the church. My mom and dad are Christians. They raised me Christian, and I'm a moral person who's seeking to be a good person, and I attend church occasionally on my own and I'm trying to be good. If that is you, and you feel that you have met the Lord and you are a Christian, then I want to challenge you to rethink that. 
Because when someone meets Jesus in the Bible, there is a change of life. There is a change of desire. There's not John's baptism where you get dunked in the water and you say, okay, now I'm ready to meet the Lord. There's an immersion in the Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit changes you from the inside. It makes you a person that wasn't there before. At least in the orientation, at least in your heart, at least fundamentally in your desire. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying that there's not times, even seasons, where we sin grievously. Yes, that happens in a Christian's life. But there is the sense where someone says, I'm following Jesus. And if you can't look at your life and say, as a pattern, I've come to the place where I say, I mess up, but I'm following Jesus. If you can't say that, if it's just intellectual, if it's just a prayer in the past, if it's just what happened at youth camp in high school, but it never took root, then you're not a Christian. You may intellectually believe, but you don't have new life. And the great news is, Jesus is seeking people. Jesus is saving people. Jesus is changing the orientation of people's hearts by His grace. And if you want to know him and want to follow him, in chapter 6 he says, anyone who comes to me, I'll never cast them out. He'll welcome you. He'll forgive you. He'll grant you new life. But don't live on a false assurance. Defining Christianity as just being intellectually a believer in Jesus. So the first thing is that Jesus is reaching people. The second thing is that if you've been reached, know this, that Jesus is reaching people through his followers here's the plan of the bible god comes with his power and converts us and then he makes converts through converts who witness to him i mean if you're here and you're a christian that's probably your story some of us had a mom or a dad or both who told us about christ coming up growing up some of us had a friend that invited us to church some of us turned on a tv and heard a sermon, whatever it is. We had some kind of testimony given to us. God uses people to reach people. And uh, look at the example even of Philip. He goes to Nathaniel, who's doubtful, and he says, come and see. He gives a personal invitation, personal testimony. I've met the Messiah. Then there needs to be content. Here's, here's what the Messiah, who the Messiah is, Jesus. And then personal invitation, come and see him. You know, I want to dispel a myth right now. Some of us think God couldn't use me to reach somebody else because I'm a new Christian or I'm a person, I don't even know that many verses. I don't really think I could tell people and explain the plan of salvation. Or what if they asked a question I can't answer? What happens to all the pygmies who've never heard about Jesus? Why is there suffering? I mean, all the what if I can't answer that question? And sometimes we think, well, we have to have this robust knowledge. We have to be a theologian to lead someone to Christ. Do you know how much these people knew about Jesus that are leading people to him? If you've read the Gospels once, you know infinitely more than these people know about Jesus at this point. Now, they know their Old Testament probably better than any of us. I'll grant you that. They know their Old Testament. But... They still had mistaken views. Their whole ministry, they're going to have mistaken views about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And uh, so all they know is he's the Lamb of God. They don't know yet about the cross and resurrection. You do. They don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. They can hear he's going to baptize in the Spirit. You can say, I've experienced that. You know more. I know more than they do. 
It's just a simple witness. We found Jesus. Come and see. He's the one who gave his life for our sins. Sometimes a witness is just come and see. I'm not sure I can explain everything, but come and see. There's some people who can. See, meet the people in my small group. They can explain it. Come to my church. Read this book. Whatever. Just come and see. Sometimes the simplest witness is powerful. These are simple witnesses. Now later, Peter's going to stand up and preach a sermon so, and write books of the Bible. They develop, I get it. But at this point, don't think about Peter writing books of the Bible. Think about, he just shows up, where, where's the Jesus? Oh, he's the one? Okay, whoa, he is, I believe. Think about Philip saying, I don't know, he's from Nazareth. I can't answer all your questions. Come meet him. Simple witness. Listen, I read a book. I'm going to get this for the Resource Center. I'm reading it right now. It's called Jesus the Evangelist. And there was an autobiographical testimony from the author that I found so compelling. It's written by a guy named Rick Phillips, Richard Phillips. And what he does is he takes passages like this and the woman at the well in chapter 4. He just goes through John and takes passages of Scripture and says, here's how Jesus witnessed people, and here's how we witness. So I'm just reading along. This guy's a pastor. He's a I mean, he's the theologian, basically, a pastor, and he's writing about evangelism. He's, you know, so I'm just putting him in this box of mature, you know, godly guys, written a bunch of books and commentaries and stuff like that, never thinking about how he met Christ. And this is what he said. In one of the chapters, he said, here's how I met Christ. I'm not a believer, and I'm moving into this apartment. And he says, while I'm moving in, right next door, there's this lady, and she's moving out. And uh, so this isn't get to know your neighbor for five years. I'm for that. But that's not what this is. If you don't know your neighbor for five years and you haven't uh, been at all their children's births and celebrated every holiday with them and see them every day, you can't bring up Jesus. Okay, listen to this. So she's moving out. He's moving in. She's got a box of books. And so he offers to help her carry that out to the car. He carries out the car. She's loaded up. She's moving out and will never see this, this guy again. And so he said, she says to Richard Phillips, um, and she's kind of nervous, and she says, uh, you know, are, are you looking for a church? And he said that he very clearly gave her the impression he is not interested in any church. So she tries to get something out, and he's just no thank you to her. And so he said she just trembling, with trembling voice says, well, if you ever are looking for a church, there's this one just down the street and it's really good and gets in her car and drives off. And he said, for years I've wondered, what was she thinking? She's probably driving off, kicking herself, saying, I'm such an idiot. I couldn't even talk about Jesus. I was nervous. I was trembling voice. I did, all I just said was the church. I didn't know. That is so, I'll never open my mouth again. That is the sorriest, weakest witness in the world. So she probably felt she did terrible. He said three months later, something happens in his life. He didn't tell what it was. But something happens in his life, and he needs God. He doesn't know any church, but the sorry witness of the lady moving off who will never see him again, and he goes to that church. They preach the gospel. He gets saved at that church. And his point was, it is the smallest witness of come and see that God can use. This passage shows us new disciples with imperfect witnesses. Hey, what are we expecting? That our witness is going to be great enough that people are going to say, oh, I have to get saved because of you. 
Never. God's designed it that your witness is imperfect. God's designed it that you don't know everything. You're not God. God's designed it that you would be dependent and trembling. And would you like to come and see? God's designed it that we in our weakness open our mouths to talk about Jesus, to share our testimony, or as that lady, even just to say, come and see. God's designed it to take weak testimony and show His power by rescuing and saving. He's the Lamb of God, you're not. But you and I have an opportunity to invite to tell, to love, to serve, to communicate who Jesus is and invite others to know Him. See, the story is that witnesses are those who are introducing people to Jesus, but Jesus is the one that is changing lives. You may not be an eloquent preacher like John the Baptist. None of us are. You don't have a spot in salvation history to prepare the way of the Lord. We're not John the Baptist But we know the Jesus He spoke of. We know a fuller. He died before the cross. We know a fuller knowledge and experience than John the Baptist did. You're not a disciple. I'm not a disciple. But we know and have experienced more than they had at this point in their ministry. God takes sinful, simple, weak people to just introduce people to Jesus. To share personal testimony. To give personal invitation. And that Jesus, the Lamb of God, the baptizer in the Spirit, the Son of God, grants new life and changes lives. May that be our story again and again. May God use us to proclaim Him and introduce Him to many people that need Him. Let's pray. God, we recognize today that we are so weak, so limited. There's not a John the Baptist in the room that there's not any of us that know all the answers. There's none of us that have a lifestyle so credible and so perfect that one glance at us would convince them of you. Lord, we're, we're fallen and we need your grace. And I just pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to us in such a way that we would say we're nothing, but he's everything. Pray that you would show yourself to us in such a way that we'd want to talk about you like we would a girlfriend or something as silly as a mechanic, Lord. I pray that we would want to talk about you because you're great. I pray that you give us opportunities to say, come and see. God, I thank you that someone said, come and see to us. And that you used that simple and perfect witness and saved us. Lord, thank you that you have come, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, and you've changed our lives. Now, Lord, change others around us, we pray. Family friends, children, parents, neighbors, co-workers, please, Lord, do this. And Lord, for anybody in the room that does not know you today, that's laboring under a false conversion, they think everything's okay, Lord, be gracious and wake them up today. If there's never been an encounter with you, the Spirit of God giving new life, may today be the day they turn and believe. In your name we pray and trust you for these things. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.